You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. The Archaeology Podcast Network is sponsored by Codify, a California benefit corporation. Visit Codify at www.codifi.com. Hi, everyone. This is Chris Sims, the editor for most of the shows on the Archaeology Podcast Network. We had a really great episode of the 8-Bit Test Pit recorded for you, but we ran into some problems uh, since this is an international podcast. It was unfortunately turned away at the border. Uh, I know it was an outrage, but this is this is life now, right? Um, well, I've been editing the show long enough basically to get the gist of it, so I'm just going to fill in for the all the hosts today. So... Um, I'm gonna do my best. I think I can. I can basically get everybody's bits. Um, so, uh, I'm Megan Dennis. Uh, I'm I'm the main one, I guess. And uh, hold on, my dog is running around like crazy. And uh, I'm Andrew Reinhardt. I've been on TV, and uh, I'm going to talk about something really heady. And uh, yeah, no, I'm uh, Tara Copplestone. I'm from New Zealand, mate. I reckon. We'll have a good go at this archeo gaming, eh? Uh, fish and chips. So, what do we talk about when we talk about archeo gaming? And really, it's it it's all in the name, archeo gaming, archaeology, and games. And and what does that mean, really? So, so there are a couple of ways to think about this. You know, kind of going at the top level, which is learning about how archaeologists are portrayed in games or how people perceive them when they play games and how an archaeological mechanic might be introduced in games and what does that look like. And so um, you guys you know, have been playing games, you know, as long as I have, maybe more. I don't know. <laughs> but, but uh, you know, you, you, I mean, Megan, you, you've, you've played like some of these old Atari cartridges like, yeah. like yeah. Uh, Tutankhamun. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, I mean, the, the representational issues that we have go back all the way to the beginning. Um, when we start to see the, the first places that we have archaeology in games, it, it, from the beginning, starts with a problematic representation, and we just continued to layer on tropes and issues from there. And, and things have changed a little bit over time as far as what particularly um, games focus on in archaeology, but there's a couple main areas that um, anyone who plays games with archaeology, you're, you're going to know these. You're going to know that there's looting. You're going to know that there's destruction of cultural property. You're going to know that there's a general um, undervaluing of the scientific process of archaeology, um, as, as shown within games. Um, these things are just there. And why they're yeah, there... But, but they're fun. Well, yeah. and that's the problem. <laughs> that's the thing that we get at is, yeah, they're fun. And how do we, how do we ask people to not do the things that are fun when the things that we take from archaeology, not those things as archaeologists, we don't go out and loot. We don't destroy cultural property. We do value science. Those things may be fun for us as we're doing them, but they don't necessarily translate into a fun, playable game. I, I totally agree with you, but I mean, we've got to remember where a lot of these representations come from, right? Like these are spawned from like the, the pre-pulp fiction, like Agatha Christie, mm -hmm. yeah. adventuring, romance, and from a time where archaeology was basically 
rich white dudes going out and taking stuff from other places. I mean, it sounds really awful to say, but like the reality is like during the, especially the empire years, like we would go out to these adventuring exotic places and take cool shiny stuff yeah. and bring it back to Ogilvy. Well, that was all part of the grand tour, you know. Yeah, exactly. You take, you take your yeah. souvenir and there. Get married, and... go on vacation, go around the world, collect, collect stuff, bring stuff. it back, yeah. and have everyone come over and look at it. But the problem, even with that, is that we started this. This is our fault exactly. as archaeologists. And and I mean, like, I, like. I think on one hand, those are problematic representations, but I think there's something historic and archaeological within them as well. I mean, like, it's not that... I think the problem comes that that's the only thing that we see. Yes. And that our representation has not moved on and we haven't found new and fun and interesting ways to challenge it. Because what we do is fun. Like, it's not like, oh, we sit in the lab and we're really dull and archaeology is, like, super boring now. Archaeology is not but... boring. I hear I hear somebody saying this at the yeah, other end of the exactly. hall. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, you know, how do we... Do we need to move beyond these representations and how yeah. and what do we do with that, I guess? Yeah, I mean... You think about representation of archaeologists typically, and this is coming out of out of <clears throat> Indiana Jones and 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 some of some of these other these other things where you've got the safari hat or the fedora, um, and I know some of our listeners are wearing a fedora right now. But with uh, you know with this, I mean, I don't see why we can't have a, a class two high visibility vest on a protagonist who's an archaeologist yes. or a hard hat, steel toed boots, and they're still, you know, kicking ass and beating Nazis and stuff. But at the same time, you know, we can kind of update the image um, and maybe have them do something a little more meaningful than what they've been doing uh, currently or previously. Uh, sorry, and to jump in a bit on that, like we've talked a bit about the representations of archaeologists, but also the part of the representation of archaeology that is problematic. And Megan mm. can speak to this quite quite a lot. But I think like to sort of preface this again these representations come from a time where where archaeology was really mysterious like people did not yes. have access to information so they didn't know what was going on in the tombs in the on the landscape in the ground and so in a lot of ways it was easier and more exciting to to create these these backstories to them which us today were like but we put all the information up like why can't you just read it like there's so much <laughs> interesting stuff in this information and so again yeah i, I guess we'll hand over to yeah, um, it comes out of this time when, I mean, I've, I've said this in a couple of venues, it, that this is our fault, because the initial guys who were doing archaeology, uh, who were trying to get, at that point, just like we do now, trying to get funding so that they could go out and do what they were doing, um, they were either using their own money so they could do whatever they wanted to when they went out there, and there was no checks and no balances on what they did, or... Uh, they were advertising and promoting themselves to the public through a swashbuckling image. Uh, and the, the, the media that they used at the time created the images that we have inherited. Um, and they created the ideas, the, the hats come from that, the whips come from that, the jungles, all of it comes from yeah. very identifiable archaeologists that we can look at and say, this person did this, and that's where our trope comes from. This person did this, and that's where our trope comes from. Um, and it was successful, and it worked for a long time, and it spawned uh, the image in other media. So, you know, we have these tropes um, that, yes, we are responsible for, that have come through historic and historical uh, archaeology through time. Uh, we see these in games, but really, you know... What's happening now is this continues to snowball through television media, where you still have adventure person, adventure guy. Typically, it's a guy, or it's, or or it's, yeah, and you know, which is a which is a damn shame. Um, and actually, have... is not 
a representative of the male to female ratio of archaeologists in the field right now. That, no, that's, uh, that's correct. Past, actually, yeah. I was going to say like it was yeah. quite unfair of me earlier to say like mostly. Well, I mean, like that's what we see in the media of the yeah. time, but like there was like. Ket and Thompson and Bell and like they were all out in, in, arche- in archaeological fields doing stuff, but they're almost never represented in the media. Complete other discussion, but yeah, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. That's, yeah, that's <laughs> well, a whole thing. <laughs> what, we, what we do need to do in one of these podcasts, whether you know whether it's uh, the next one or the one after, is certainly do like a Trailblazers edition of Archeo Gaming um, because there's certainly a lot to talk about with uh, with female representation within games. Yeah, yeah. and female creators and inputs yes. to some of these games. Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, Rihanna Pratchett like just officially left the Tomb Raider series this week, mm. very loudly and publicly, wow. uh, which is something we may want to get into at some point, but not today. Um, <laughs> some time next time. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what do we do? What do we do about this problem? What are we going to do? Well, I guess How are we going to fix it? I mean, like, do we need fix to fix it? I mean, <laughs> so I guess the, the first thing that I kind of want to raise is it's like, we kind of have this thing in, in academia or within like critical reception studies as we say like these representations are wrong and that they're bad and like I don't disagree with the fact that they have damaging and ethical impacts and that we should be critical of that but I do think that, that they are part of our history and that we need to to in part embrace that and understand where they come from and then what happens now is obviously you said that they were so effective at creating this image for themselves and that's that people really enjoyed that there is so much stuff in archaeology that we could do that for so like how do we as as archaeologists how do we leverage media because i think we're not great at that we tend to wait for people to come to us or complain about what's made about us rather than necessarily being proactive right um that was that was a long rant to get to the point which was basically like how do we affect real change rather than just saying it's wrong and it's bad like, if we want to change it, how do we change it? And what impact do we see that having on us as a discipline? Well, we don't have the money to change it no. uh, in terms of having, you know, a counter industry or anything. Um, we simply, we don't, we don't have the, the dollars or pounds or euros for that. Um, so is, is the goal that we try to get more archaeologists involved in development is the goal that we try to um, make ourselves more available to studios. Do Does any of that matter if we haven't figured out a way to make what we do fun to the public without the other stuff? Yeah. Well, I think that's it, right? I mean, like, I think there's a lot of mechanics in archaeology that are really fun. It's just that they're not traditional game mechanics or they're not what we've, like, built a repertoire of over right. the past 35 years. So breaking, like making those mechanics requires someone either brave enough to, to do it themselves. So it's not going to come from AAA. It's going to be right. independent or for us to make it ourselves or for us to have developed a shared lexicon. So we can actually speak to developers um, and really express what we mean rather than just saying no hats and whips. Like we can actually hold, <laughs> hold a like prolonged discussion. Yeah. But making, making a space like that and making those connections between you know, game developers and and archaeologists, I, I think it's going to you know go go a long ways towards towards building that bridge and sharing that that as you say, Tara lexicon. Um, is some we, of it generational? Is it looking at it and saying the people who are running things right now? Yeah, uh, in the the AAA studios. Yeah. Um, 
presumably everyone who works in the AAA studios came from somewhere. Yeah. So is the goal that we reach the people who will be the next generation of producers and designers and mm. do things so that by the time that the studios are seated with those people, that the change has occurred on a lower level to where it's within their idea of what we look like to begin with. Yeah, I guess, like, I can't really speak directly to this, but I can speak around the point. But, like, in my master's research, I went and I sat in a whole right. different bunch of game studios. And what I found was that the people who are, like, the writers, the narrative designers, the, like, level designers, the engine designers, the artists, like, basically anyone at production level, so people who are making stuff, are not only really interested, but genuinely care and like are like really want to connect with this stuff. The problem is that that there has to be a sale point, right? Like there has to be a, a point of reference that can be pointed to and say, look, this game in the past has sold really well. Like Tomb Raider has sold really well. So it's easy to say like, let's take that kind of a representation and replicate it, but change this one thing to make mm -hmm. it, you know, our IP now. Yeah. Whereas it's very hard to say, like, we're going to make a game about a modern, like a very modern day archaeologist using non-looting mechanics, um, who's all about, like, ethical kind of engagements with the general public. You know, like, it's, it's yeah. a much harder sell because yes. it's not a lexicon that we're used to. So part of it is, like, us being willing to affect change and have a mm -hmm. discussion, and part of it as well is finding a way to make it financially viable and prove that it can be and that change also has to come from like sadly lowered down so like doing game jams and showing that these products can be made doing like small level independent products uh, and then moving on from there i guess I, th I think also part of this you know could be worked in, in into the games as well where you know in, in modern games there are all these decision trees you know where your character makes a decision and that affects future gameplay your reputation you know with other factions in the game and stuff like that and that's that. quite a modern model too though. and and so so you know being able to have these trees where what happens when you decide not to loot something what happens when you decide not to destroy something how does that affect your relationship with other with other factions and other people in the game and how that game works and how they how your story changes and making that as rewarding as it does when you go in and you kill stuff and you sell stuff and you steal stuff um, and you know, maybe you get better gameplay and actually you know better magic better buffs better loot and stuff by doing the right thing as opposed to you know just kind of smash and grab mechanics and seeing if we can we can work you know through that yeah. i totally like I, I agree i think that that's definitely one way but to me that seems a little bit like putting a plaster over the wound like like i mean mm -hmm. like it is a really good idea but on one hand it's like all you're doing is saying rather than ha like you're you're in a zero-sum game here right when yeah. you approach it like that and you're oh, saying yes. rather than being able to win because you loot we just substitute that directly to you win because you don't loot and so it's like yes that's viable and yes that's interesting but it's i guess when people are so used to one thing, why, like, if you're so conditioned to do this thing and be rewarded for it, it can be quite jarring to go to that other thing. So managing, like, yeah. that can be a really effective way to wake people up. But if it goes on again and again and again and again, yeah. that just becomes the next trope of archaeology, that all we do is leave stuff behind. So it's like, how, like again, how do you create diversity? Like, it's not a one or the other. That sounded really quite depressing, but no, no, no I'm, just, <laughs> I'm just trying to think to how be. this is applying, you know, for for things like that are happening in in, in Syria or or mm. in the Americas, for example, where you've you've got you know uh, destitute people who've turned to you know looting and selling, you know, to middlemen, for example, and and how that's being countered or attempted to be countered 
there too, where you have this other option. You don't have to loot; you can do something else. Yeah. Um, and, and how that might be translated into games. But I guess like uh, the undertone of all. I mean, like we've moved mm. away from archaeologists, like what we we do as archaeology. Mm. But I think there's a lot of ethical things that we need to be concerned about when we talk about digital stuff, like the colonization of archaeology in the digital space, and kind of extending these very empire-oriented, we know what to do with archaeology because we are archaeologists and we, like we, like as, you know, English archaeologists, we know what to do with your culture. Like, how do we then balance that with the ethics and the cultures and the values of archaeologists working elsewhere in the world and their cultures and their backgrounds? Like, I think those also need a lot of respect and, and ethical consideration. Yeah, um, decoloniality in, in archaeological video games is, I think, going to be an emerging field. And if there's anybody out there who is interested yes. in doing an MA or a PhD and you have not figured out a topic, <laughs> this, uh, here please we go. talk to us. We will make sure that you have the resources to write a good proposal for that topic, because I yes. would love to see it written. Um, yeah, uh, a real simple one is talking about what, what you just said, the mechanic in the latest Civ with the yeah. British museums and collecting artifacts. Can yep. you speak to how that one? Because I think you've played that through more than me. No, I've only played... I've actually... I have, like, no time to play games apart from the ones I do for my studies. So I've only played sad. one game. But yeah, <laughs> maybe that's something we can research. You know, I can have oh, a legitimate yeah. reason to play it and we can talk about it next time. I think I that's think a good plan. Coloniality yeah. is something that deserves its own 20 yeah. minutes to talk about. Yeah, I agree. Well, for sure, you know, it would be cool to have, you know, NPCs or advisors who are, you know, not British or not American, who are indigenous to the regions that's are, that are being explored. Yeah, or at um, least show the opposite perspective, right? Like, you can yeah, have your yeah. clone, because that's literally what happened. Mm. But to have someone be like, yo, what are you doing? Yes. This is, you know, that's... You know, that's, that's important to me. Why are you taking it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, which I guess is like, it goes back to, we've talked about this a bit on the show in the past, which is a lot of what we see in archaeological video games is like constructive or reconstructive. So it's like trying to recreate the past or recreate what we do as archaeologists rather than deconstruct it. So rather than making the argument about like, how and why do we do this? It just says like, this is what we do. And I think with a move to more deconstructive, like this argument based system, there's the potential to kind of explore and have room for discussion rather than just like straight representation, I guess. Right. And I think that's more interesting than the straight representation. Yeah. That, well, that dialogue, that argument. I think you need both, right? Like, yeah. you know, straight representations can be fun and interesting and surface level enjoyable. Well, they have you don't, been. You don't because, always want... <laughs> well, 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 no, yeah. Sometimes you just want to blow something up. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> but then you also need to, to question. The fun, the fun aspect of things or what makes it fun. But, you know, we've, we've played that kind of game for a long time. Yeah, and I think yeah, it's yeah. time for us to try some other stuff. Yeah, and I think through just making just making other stuff plain and simply, you'll start to, like, to, to be able to question that trope because you become aware of it. Mm -hmm. If the only thing you see is the trope, it's just normative. Like, you're like, oh, whatevs. Like... <laughs> well, we're going to take a break in a second. But when we come back, um, let's talk about a different method of representing archaeology in games Ooh. and we're going to shift it a little bit and talk about uh, a board game and board game representations of archaeology yes, yes. sound good to everybody yep right. love it would you like to get more involved with archaeology are you looking for volunteer or internship opportunities are you already working on community or personal archiving projects and could use some helpful hints check out the ideas portal sponsored by codify visit ideas.codify.com 
a free and open community tool and share your ideas, knowledge, and advice on select topics that will lead to vibrant opportunities and initiatives for all aspects of archaeology, from field work to public service. All ideas are welcome, so visit ideas.codify.com today and make your voice heard. That's ideas.codifi.com. Hey, we are back. Um, we are going to talk now about uh, archaeology and games in a slightly different format, uh, but tagging on to what we were talking about previously with representation. Uh, Tara has been doing some work with Hayuk, a mm. board game focusing on Chattel Hayuk. Well, technically just Anatolian settlement during the Neolithic. Like, it just kind of broadly applies to any kind of Hayuk, but yes. That is is not a phrase we often get broad Anatolian settlement <laughs> uh, dealing with games. So no. <laughs> talk to us about this game. Why should we either care or not care about this game? Why is it important to us as archaeologists or people who care about heritage and games? Okay, well, well f first things first, like I started out as a Neolithic archaeologist and representation in Neolithic archaeology is not super great. There's not a lot of people who are like, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about and what you study when you say that. So having any kind of representation through a game was very exciting to me to start with. Um, so Hoyuk is, is basically a kind of area control tile placement game uh, which you play versus between uh, one other player or five players. So there can be between two and five people playing at any time. Uh, and there's a lot of assets that you have to gather, and you get points for the amount of assets, which is also directly related to the amount of land that you control. Now, uh, anyone who's sort of like familiar with, with Neolithic settlements, especially at, at Chattahoyuk uh, in Anatolia, um, will know that this, is, this, this mechanic itself that we're talking about right now is not uh, super in line at all, really, generally, with how we see things <laughs> there. It's, it's a little problematic. Um, but to kind of step back from that, the... Yeah. The, the graphical representation, whilst there's some sort of like game design flaws with it, is across the board or on the whole like actually quite good. Like they actually have a lot of archaeological artifacts represented in the game. Some of them don't exist on the sites, but that's okay. Most of them do. Um, some of them are really well researched and really well implemented. Um, and, and I think on the whole, like it's a really good starting point like when we talk about kind of like the, the bad representations earlier or like not the bad but you know the older representations this game has certainly made um a, a pretty good leap into trying to at least do something quite different even if not mechanically then definitely graphically and temporally so you guys have both played as well i, I forced you to play with me as part of my research um yep. yeah um Andrew, you had a word or a phrase <laughs> you used to describe gameplay for this game um frustrating I would agree with that. Frustrating. Um, nothing really seemed to make all kinds of sense or logic. You know, from an archaeological point of view, you're using these different chits and cards and pieces, and and that didn't seem to follow any kind of human logic either. Yeah. Um, as 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 one was playing, and so I found it frustrating on both just a simple gameplay, um, uh, re you know, respect as well as from an archaeological perspective. Um, it, yeah, we played the game. We finished it, mm -hmm. but under duress. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you see, I think like I think we're being really harsh because like the, like I'm not gonna lie, the game has some flaws, some quite significant ones. But on the whole, like I'm just really excited to see that people actually care about this representation. Oh, absolutely. And yeah. that have been researching. I mean, like to kind of go back to it. There's we've talked a lot earlier about like <laughs> physical representations, like what things look like in games. 
um, and we've started to touch a little bit on mechanics or so like how things act. And this game is a really good example of something called ludonarrative dissonance, which is when the narrative which the game is trying to tell you, so like for this example, it's trying to tell us the narrative of uh, how Neolithic settlements happened in Anatolia, um, does not match at all with the mechanics. So the narrative is basically that everything's quite egalitarian, a nice flat society, um, things get built up collaboratively, people aren't living in nuclear families, they're living in very kind of sporadic groupings, which often change as far as we can tell. Um, and the, the way that the mechanics manifest in this game is you are a clan and you're actually represented as a nuclear family, like a mum, a dad, and one child. And then you have like these houses which are trying to destroy your neighbours so you can get more land and you're trying to get like more resources and it turns into this like weirdly capitalistic kind of expansionist game somewhere along the line. Um, and so I guess like if we wanted to start talking about like representation and mechanics, like how did you guys, I mean other than frustrating, did you guys have any ideas or suggestions or comments about the mechanics of this game? My problem um, was that I could not figure out strategies to win. Well, yes, yeah. that's a good point so, as well. We actually talked about what the win condition is. How do you win the game? What's the goal? You get the most points. That's how you win. Just like in life. Yes. <laughs> Just like in archaeology. You're yes. like, I dug 36 artifacts today. Yeah. I win. Yeah. No, that's not how it works. Scrap <laughs> that. Not, that's not, not. Maybe no. not on your side. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Oh, dear. Okay. Um, yes, we have achievement points where I dug. You just gamified archaeology. Like... <laughs> You look down your gamified sheet like... Now you see the divide between digging in the classical world and digging in the new world. Yeah. If we find one thing in the new world, we're happy. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we... Uh, so winning the game, for me, I wanted to win. I, I wanted to play, but I also wanted to play to win. Yeah. And I had problems with understanding what... I was supposed to be doing sometimes in order to actually facilitate winning. Yeah. Uh, and it seemed sometimes like it didn't really matter what I did that, um, we've talked about this, that, that the luck versus strategy yeah. alignment seemed off in yeah. this game. Mm -hmm. Uh, I felt like it didn't matter what strategy <laughs> I put in place. If certain conditions came up in the game, it, then I just wasn't, it wasn't going to be possible for me to win. From the beginning. Yeah, so we should mention at this point that the way... So there's this huge luck-based aspect in the game which comes in the form of both catastrophes and also the cards you can draw because they get mixed. Um, also the boards that you draw which tell you what you can build which then gets mixed as well. There's a lot of Very, pieces in this game. There's yeah. so many tiny that, cards. That tell you what to pieces. do. Yeah, but this masquerades over the top of this very complex, almost like 4X style strategy game. So it's kind of like, like if you imagine Civilization as a board game kind of thing, like like or Risk, if you know Risk mm -hmm. as a game. Like it's very, like, the game itself is very, very complex, like strategically, but then implements so much of this like chance-based aspect that it becomes like even if you win, you're just like I'm not entirely sure if I won because I was good, or if the game just exactly. gave me good stuff. Exactly, that was my problem. I which, couldn't tell where I was in the gameplay. Yeah, which might be a powerful argument about the role of like the environment and the role of like natural disasters or interpersonal mm -hmm. relationships yeah. in the past. But it doesn't pan out that way. Like, wolves destroy ovens, which, like, as far as I know, we have no... Like, uh, wolves don't destroy ovens. I'm pretty sure that doesn't happen. <laughs> like... <laughs> yeah. 
feel free to write in if you're an archaeologist <laughs> who's found this, but... Or if you work in the biological sciences with wolves and you have a problem with wolves destroying your ovens. Just coming we in. We'd really like to know yeah. about that. Uh, We'd like to collaborate with you on a research paper about the historical documentation of wolves destroying ovens. <laughs> to get back on track, though. My, uh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was, was going to say, my, my, my main frustrations with, with, with the gameplay was, first of all, you, the game board is a map. And yeah. the map has a river running through it. Uh, it has trees and hills and rocks. And it's, it's really pretty. It's, it's 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 quite pretty, but it doesn't make a difference to how mm. you play. No, you know, in the real world, you've got a landscape, and you can build next to a mountain or by a river. You don't put a house on a river unless it's on top of no. something. Or didn't. if you did, you would be flooded, and you yes. would learn that's a terrible idea. Mm. Exactly, and so and so you're you're. you're the landscape of the board is just pictures. It doesn't have an effect on the gameplay. And the other thing is, is that as things you know were happening in the game, they, they seem to run counter to how they might work in the real world. Why would I want yeah. to build a house now? Um, and you've got other pieces. You know, you've got a shrine piece, or you've got a sheep piece, or a buffalo piece, uh, or an oven piece, and those don't do anything. You have these things, and they help score you points and stuff. That's but there's there's no use. They just give yeah. you points, mm-hmm. and, and so there's no reason. You know, why pick a shrine over an oven? Yeah, it's because your player has less of them than you. Yeah, and that's and this, it. Like, it really frustrates me that you can win the game without ever placing an oven. Because if this was the real life, like, <laughs> you, you, would, would you would starve. Like, you're just <laughs> yep. dead you're at dead. this point. Yeah, yeah. we and don't it, need shrines, but we do need ovens. And I mean, like, I'm willing to look past it as well. If, if the, so, like, I talked a bit yesterday, I gave a presentation on this, about how, like, how could we fix this game? And, like, my kind of... I say fixes, though, like, oh, I'm much better at designing stuff. <laughs> like, that's not what I mean at all, but it's like, can we speak as archaeologists about what mechanics would work better here? And I think one of the things that we brought up was, or the key concern, was that this game is competitive against other players who you're trying to build your hook with, which makes no sense to this context. What would make infinitely more sense was, would be to have a collaborative versus board game. So something like if you played Pandemic, mm-hmm. where it's like, Events happen, and those events can be like natural disasters. They can be faults, like in pandemic about disease spread, like faults in the lab. Whereas this could be like at Chattahoyak, especially we see this like systematic construction and destruction of houses, which is purposeful, not a natural disaster. So like you could have cards which which or mechanics which allow that to happen in a way which rewards that or which means that has to happen rather than penalizing the destruction yeah, of houses. Yeah, I think that was one of my frustrations is there's no reallocation of resources and no. there's no concept in it that um, that habitation is an ongoing process exactly. and that it's a changeable <laughs> yeah. process. Mm. The idea in this game is you build a house and someone may or may not build a house near you and you may build resources near your house, but you, unless they're destroyed... Yeah you never change your ideas about where things go. You never um, really grow your settlements or move them. No. They're just they're there in and existing. They're yours. And, yeah, and, and we, we know that that's not, how, that's not how settlement processes work. No, and the thing is, right, like, like I mean, I can only speak to Chatterhoy because it's the only place I've worked, but it's like... It's such an interesting site, and it's so different to how we tend... I mean, I say we as if everyone has the same experience, but how I live my life now in, like, these very kind of modern city-based individual possessions, mm-hmm. individual locations, dwelling-type thing where my family is the people who are my blood kin. Like, we, it's completely different as far as we can see that. Like, so otherworldly. And so many of the mechanics... Like, the, the game could have used 
really individual cool mechanics to make really powerful arguments about that past and through play people could have come to realize this because it's really hard actually like uh, we when we're on site we we give tours to the public when they come in to kind of help them uh, get a grip on like archaeologically what's happening and it's really hard like even as an archaeologist standing there talking to someone it's really hard to express like how this place works because it's huge and it's changing and it's dynamic the great thing about a board game is that it is changing and dynamic and can right. represent these huge scales. So, yeah. Yeah, I think there's a there's a lot of promise in the game, um, but ultimately, both in terms of historical veracity and gameplay, we all had places where we felt like it fell down. Yeah. Um, which is, is disappointing, but doesn't mean that we don't want to see more games like this. We want more games that, that draw on um, historical and archaeological periods, especially periods that aren't well represented in media and in gameplay. Yeah, yeah. not just in periods, but also in cultures, yeah. right? Yeah. And, and I think like, oh, sorry. No, 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 I was, was going to ask, <laughs> are, there, are there games out there that are doing that now and perhaps doing it better than Hoyek? Uh, I don't know. I, I, I have a list in my head of stuff, <laughs> which I think, again, is another segment, right, where we talk about things because a lot of the things which i think are doing it really well are not explicitly archaeological games but yet use yeah. archaeological mechanics really well mm. but let's let's, let's not diverge okay, into that because okay. i'll rant for like half an hour otherwise <laughs> great i think like to kind of wrap up this discussion or start wrapping it up at least um one of the things i kind of wanted to, to drive home was that like we, we've been very critical and it might sound a bit like we're beating up this game and that it's like really awful and we hate it which is not the case at all. Like, I actually really like this game. You don't play a game 28 times that you completely hate. No, exactly. And, <laughs> and the thing is, right, it's like, like there are problems with it, but there are problems with everything. Like, there's problems with chocolate and that it makes me fat, but I still love it. Like, the, there's a problem... <laughs> there, there are problems with the mechanics of this game, and there are problems with the representations, but these are all things which, through critical discussion, and I think, like, through us actually discussing it this way and thinking what we could do differently, this actually would become a constructive thing. Um, and hopefully in the future we'll be able to move this this kind of, um, these representations forward. And I think to kind of like make a call back to what we talked about earlier about having these very kind of like typical to the time representations, I feel like with Hook, whilst it's not a completely modern representation, like it's lagging behind by like a good like 30 years from where we are archaeologically now, like it's at least like 80 years further forward from where we were with other representations like of these very like looting kind of um, taking things away and destroying things mechanics. Like obviously the capitalism thing and the kind of expansionism mm -hmm. thing is a problem. But but it is interesting that ethically in this game there is no looting. Exactly. And like um, that and I that really I like. It doesn't even come up in any of the catastrophe situations. Nope. There's There's nothing in this game where people versus people are an issue. Apart from, the, apart from the destruction, apart but from like the, yeah. actual, yeah. There, yeah. There's no exchange of resources. Right. There's no, it's all controlled through the yeah, game. There's yeah, there's no actual commodifications of artifacts, which are things that we tend to see yeah. in these games. Um, so, one hand good, one hand bad. Yeah, That's like it's, it's kind of how this goes. Right direction. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, yeah, I think we're definitely moving in a, in a better direction, and I would be interested in, in us looking at some point if board games in general are doing better 
than video games are doing yeah. as far as representation. Um, it's actually an area that I'm woefully like, I, I, I know very little yeah, about Yeah, and I know there's some people who are out there doing research with board games and archaeology right yeah. now. Um, that might be an interesting place to... In. We should bring them have in. Have an interview yes. with them. Oh, that yeah. would be fantastic. Yeah. Um, but I, I think to conclude as well, if you've played Hoyuk, I mean, because again, like Hoyuk existed as a PDF that you could download mm -hmm. and then it's like a full game as well. So we're talking about the, the actual game that you can buy as a board set, although we've also played the other one. Anyway, if you've played either of those things, like we'd really like to hear from you what your experience is and like what you've kind of got out of it or, or whether you thought it was good or bad and why. Get some feedback going. And as I understood from your talk, some of the issues that we have might have been issues coming out of the Kickstarter process. Yeah. When it transitioned from being a downloadable PDF to a Kickstarter back game to uh, a sold yeah. board game yeah so as they they very quickly on the kickstarter they had stretch goals and for the stretch goals they added in like more and more and more and more stuff so in game development we call this feature creep it's like this idea that you're like oh we'll just add another thing oh we'll just add another thing oh that would be really cool and suddenly you go from this really nice tight experience which is really like like easy to understand and get a grasp on to just being like oh my god there's so much stuff and none of it particularly adds to the core experience of the game, which I think is a, where a lot of the frustration actually comes in with Hook. But if you only played the basic game, then it's kind of like, ah, put some tiles on the board. That was fun. Yeah. Like, it's kind of like, where do you find that balance and, and how do you manage that expansion? Yeah. And this was also a game that really benefited from house rules. Yes! Oh my god, yes! Because <laughs> there's two things which are completely broken, namely, namely the cattle and the clan powers. Just, just don't with the clan powers. It's not a fun experience. Yeah, that that's one of the areas where the game really pitted one player against another in ways that didn't feel necessarily equitable. Mm. No, what well, you got in gameplay. Yeah, one one clan or one player can destroy a, a house that's adjacent to them any turn they want. One player can take a sheep pen from anyone any turn, and one player can move the shaman, which protects a block, which benefits everyone if the disaster hits that which there's like a one in eight chance. So it's like, you know, two clans have really great powers and one poor clan's like, hey guys, I'm relevant. So I think the, the main takeaway here though is you're talking about Kluyuk in this fashion, but also this is scalable to talking about historical and archeological video games yes. too. Is, yeah, is absolutely. That you do have this, this kind of critical discourse to figure out what's working, what's not, what's mm -hmm. historical, what's not, what's archaeological, what's not, which is which is great. And this is something that that uh, you know one of our mutual friends, Ethan Wattrall, did with his students at Michigan State University right. is the yeah. fact that they made a game called Redland Blackland, and and they were able to talk about you know how the game mechanic worked and the historicity of Egypt and, and and all of that. And that's something that we can use as a pedagogical tool as well as a tool for engaging the public in, in what archaeology is and what it can be within a game space. Yeah, and I think that that takes us to a fairly deep note. Um, and when we come back, we're going to go into a real deep dive into Just something. Um, <laughs> dealing with procedural into. generation. So if, if you've hung on this far, uh, it's, it's going to be... It's going to uh, be fun. It's going to be fun. Trust me. This is your, you're about to see where the real deep talk happens. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. I'm Jessica Uquinto, and I'm the host of the Heritage Voices podcast. Heritage Voices focuses on how CRM and heritage professionals, public employees, tribes, and descendant communities can best work together to protect their heritage through tribal consultation, collaborative ethnography, 
and Indigenous archaeology. Now back to the show. Hello, and we are back. And this time, as Megan said on the way out, we're going to do the fun, exciting, and really try to make it as straightforward as possible conversation about procedural generation in video games. Now, Andrew, you you posted a blog post this week yeah. um, about this, and you had some some interesting ideas on the topic. All right. Um, well, let, let's let's talk a little about what procedural generation actually is. Good place um, to start. So, that for those of you who are scoring at home, um, procedural uh, generation is basically um, algorithms within code that makes up a game that gives the game instructions as it's compiling on your computer or on your console to say, okay, you know, if, if uh, you have a tree, it instructs it to populate the tree with leaves, or if you have, want to make a forest, it tells, you know, the console or the, or, or, or the, the software running on your computer how to, how to make that forest upon the player entry into a particular environment. What this does is it saves the programmer a lot of time and aggravation because they no longer need to write code for every single leaf for every single tree. Um, this actually explains, you know, or tells the game how to actually do that. So things become much more fast, but also memory and storage is less of an issue because you no longer have to, to keep all of those things there, you know, so procedural generation can do anything from, you know, populating or masking buildings with different textures like bricks and stuff, or, or making, you know, wilderness environments, you know, that stretch off into the distance or, or making, you know, cityscapes, you know, that stretch as far as the eye can see. Can I um, ask a, a technical question? Of course. As someone who used to play a lot of MMOs, how does procedural generation as executed now have to do with, like, the old things that we dealt with in MMOs, like draw distance and um, how the games wouldn't load certain areas until you... Till there was actually a player in them. Are these things related at all, or are they completely separate things that my non-technical mind has put together as related? Okay, so two two separate things, but that that can interact. So like draw distance basically describes the um, imagine that you're standing in a city, and basically there's a lot of fog, and that fog means you can only see a meter in front of you. Your draw distance, like what you can actually render in front of you, is one meter. And that's what draw distance is. It's saying, how much do I have to load in? And but then the you, thing is already technically designed and coded somewhere just waiting to load in. Yeah. And so then the next thing is something called level of detail, which is lotting. So basically that says, uh, within one meter, you'll load the high like resolution model. Within 20 meters, you'll load a low resolution model. Okay. And within 50, you'll just render like some kind of child's finger painting in the background. And this gives, it actually gives like a really realistic effect. This is kind of how we see anyway, right? Like we see really high detail close, mid-level detail, mid-distance, and like pfft, some colors in the distance. Um, and this was really important, like this and uh, like level of detail and draw distance are really important back in like very early console era games. Um, think for example, like Silent Hill, where they use this fog to basically get around having to load and draw right. large amounts of complex set on right. the fly. But it also added the ambiance. Exactly. You know, so this is, is a really, I mean, like an artifact or residue for that kind of thing. Yeah. What we're talking about but, <laughs> is, 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 is the mechanic is called Perlin noise. You know, when it when it's when it's done in this way, it's it's basically you know named after this guy named Perlin who wrote the first algorithm that 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 made this kind of procedural generation possible back in 1982 or 83, I think. Um, but in my mind, you know, this is a kind of noise, or, or basically, it's populating an area to give you the emotional impact of being in a space. 
um, you know, it's how a forest should feel, even though it's not necessarily, you know, a completed forest. It's, it's how a city should feel, even though you, know, you can't see the, the entire city. It's got elements that it's kind of like gestalt, I guess, of, of, of you completing the forms yourself in your mind's eye as you're, as you're going around. And for, for, for me as a player and for me as a, as a student of games and archaeology, you know, having that kind of emotional impact and having that tied into a story or a narrative is really, you know, the core principle for, for why one has this. Um, you know, at least that's, that's how I'm seeing it. Right. And this is where I disagree fundamentally. And this is, I think, the first time that we've actually had a really big disagreement on the show. So, well, we'll see where this goes. But basically, like... Blood on the carpet. Blood on the carpet. So, like, I, I can't... <laughs> it's just, yeah, going to pick up the vase and just, like, go nuts. No, that's not going to happen. Finish him. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> so, back to topic, anyway. So, like, I come from a computer science background, and I spend my days, like, making games now. And a lot of the time, um, like, I do use procedural generation to generate places. Like, so what Andrew's talking about is, like, the noise. It's, like, generating things which, like, look nice in the area and give it kind of, like, a... I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but, like, a, a ambiance, like, a sense of place. Yeah. And the, the, the reason for that place <laughs> is to progress a narrative, to have a direct impact on the player and what their meaning in the world is. Now, that, like, that is true for part of the time. But part of the time, like, I literally use it to generate the world because I'm interested in like, well, if I, to kind of go back to what procedural generation is, like it is basically a recipe which tells the world like how things can go together. So a recipe for a recipe. So rather than it saying, we're gonna bake a chocolate cake, it says like, we're gonna bake a cake and here's all the different ways that cakes can be made. And this is all the different circumstances and how that's gonna to go together. And these are the, the possible outcomes kind of from that, but you don't specify the outcomes that's embedded in the algorithm. So sometimes I use it to basically ground truth what I think about something. So I'm like, okay, well, I think that people place houses next to rivers because it looks pretty. Okay, what is the, what is the code? What is the algorithm for something looking pretty? How can I describe that to the game? And then you execute it and you see like, oh yeah, like that is what I expected. Or you're like, oh no, 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 no. And then sometimes I use procedural generation like purely for a mechanical purpose. So it's like, I am lazy when I make stuff. And so it's like, if I don't have to place things, if the, the, if the machine can do that for me, if it can generate levels faster and better and more interestingly than I can, then I'm just going to let it do that. And that is devoid of narrative. Like, that does not create place. That does not create any sense of narrative. Like, it is just a, like, purely, like, mechanical thing that it's doing. Uh okay okay <laughs> so, <laughs> that's no, my argument well i mean okay think think about th you know think about the games for a minute a game a game is not a game unless there's an agent playing it no absolutely ooh, ooh, ooh. it's it's a physical i mean like the code exists right i don't know if i agree with that i'm uh, not sure how and, i feel and, about that and, statement and i i think that if there is a player in a game space interacting with the game as an agent that there is narrative even if the narrative is not coming from the maker's perspective. I think the so player brings saying, in the narrative with them. Are you saying that a, a band, because again, going back, former big time MMO <laughs> yeah. freak out here. All of these MMOs that are out there abandoned. There's no players. Yeah. Are they no longer games because there's no... 
player acting within them? They, does they, it reinstate its gameness when as soon we go as someone in? comes in? And <laughs> does that count still as a game if, for example, you or I okay. went in just to research within I the love, space? I love I love this question because it brings me to the to the focus of games as sites. Yeah. You know, if you look at a game as an archaeological site, or if you look at archaeological sites as archaeological sites, is a site no longer a site when there's no one occupying that site until it reemerges, you know, through excavation. And then what happens? Uh, in my mind, a game is always a game. A game is initially played by one or more people, and then those people might stop playing it or whatever, and that space is still around. Um, so, yeah, it can still be classed as a game at that point. But it's like to kind of interject here, isn't aren't we talking about two separate things? Like a like game, <laughs> I mean, like, and this is like a terminology thing, which yeah. I mean, keep people in game scholarship argue about all the time. God knows, like, and we argue all the time also. Mm. But it's like a game is a physical thing, like it is a like I mean, like it can be a cartridge or a CD or it can be a digital thing, which is like an amalgamation of code compiled right. with images. Yeah. And what we're talking about is gameplay, like. That right. gameplay cannot yeah. exist without a player. Like right. the game does not run or do anything. Like it can run, but yeah, it's not yeah. active. We're getting into the I guess yeah, but the, the two big arguments the, 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 of what games have been. And, and for the, a while. the proceduralism, it, it's written in it, but it's waiting for agency to activate it. But you can use procedural generation to seed a whole like universe. Like I can write oh, yeah. like procedural stuff to tell people to have day night cycles and how they're going to go about their life and. Mm-hmm. How they're going to interact with the environment? Yes, and like which, none of that which is still contributes to narrative. Yeah, but but that game would still run. Like that would still be a like god simulated it's, it's game a, it's able to running be run. on its own. It's able to be run. Yeah, yeah. So like that's not narrative though because that doesn't require a player to play. So so my argument here is that the the primary purpose of this stuff is not purely narrative. Narrative is something which can exist from a player's agency, but that's not necessarily authorial intent or. Um, like self-evident within it and so to no, categorize everything as narrative because is narrative is emergent behavior based on the rules that you've made through your procedural algorithms but it can also be explicit so then if you're saying like implicit narrative then how do we begin to define that because that seems like something that is very specific <clears throat> to i mean not actually though yeah. like it seems quite specific to video games but we do it all the time when we read a book right like we yeah. imagine the places in our head and we construct right. well, th- the well, stuff along let's but... go to your, let's go to your cake analogy why did you code a cake? It doesn't matter what kind of cake, but you've said, okay, we're going to make a cake in this game, and it, it can be any of these different kinds based on the rules that that you know that have been coded that the computer can follow. So you might get a, a chocolate cake or a sponge cake or yeah. something at the end of it. But but why make the, why make the cake? Because I can. Because, because I'm can. interested. Like yes, but that's not a game. But it can be like mm-hmm. like the the reason why I make these algorithms is not necessarily narrative embedded it can serve other like ludological or like just personal enjoyment you know you know i have some weird ideas of fun i guess but, <laughs> no, but you know baking like, is fun yeah. baking, baking via code is also fun i guess i guess my problem with <laughs> this i'm not thing interested is in that... cakes i can't eat i'm just telling you okay. the, the cake is a lie it is a lie <laughs> we won that yeah yes we did so I guess, I guess the, the thing which I'm trying to say here is that like, if we categorize everything as narrative, if it just is narrative, it becomes a meaningless topic. Like, it just becomes a meaningless case to which we just throw all, all code. All art then becomes narrative. All, it, like, everything just is narrative, like, by just existing. Yes. I see, and again, and that, I think there's a place in there I'm having problems. <laughs> yeah. Because I think narrative requires perspective. Exactly, and this is what I'm trying to get at with this thing, okay. which is... I think that for procedural code to be considered narrative, it's 
function or its purpose has to be narrative and that there are other functions which exist outside of that. They can contribute to world building, they can contribute to gameplay, but that is very separate to narrative or narrative structure. I mean, I say very separate as if these are like complete black and white lines, which they're not, no. but you know, like it's... No, we make the space to operate within the space. Yeah, and, and I think this goes back, which I mean, to get, this, to get this back on track to a little bit of archaeology stuff as well, <laughs> instead of well, me just ranting. But like when we go into a site, right, like yeah, every yeah. object is part of a narrative, right? Yes. But it, it's like, and in itself, it can have a narrative, yes. but that object is not narrative, like... The object it, it, itself is not narrative. The act of making is, and the act of usage is. And the act yes, of, and this of is recovering from context is, is. and yes. the context itself is narrative. And so this yes. was this is what I'm trying to get at, which is that procedural generation is not narrative. It can be understood as the process of creating narrative. It can be used for narrative. It can tell narratives. Yeah. But it is not like the the, the object of procedural code and generation is not. Right. Can you think of a the way object, in which the is, object it, it might, could may, be narrative? Yeah, which... tons. Like I, I, a game which I made like years ago now, Buried, actually uses a lot of procedural generation to make the narrative <coughs> on the fly. Okay. And so, like, you can absolutely as well. Like, it, it can be narrative, <laughs> and it can be narrative embedded yes. in the code as well. But the act it's of, not explicit. Or it's not self-evident. Right. Well, the act of making of making the algorithm. Um, is also narrative on a maker's perspective. Yeah. We're coming at this from very from two fundamental sides. Yeah. Um, my flavor of archaeo gaming is 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 coming from a player archaeological perspective to understand the mind of the maker um, through the artifact of the game, and and it seems like you're coming at it from the side of the maker, making the space and building the world to see how all of these things operate, um, and and so we're meeting in the middle now. Yeah. Exactly. In this, yeah. In space. And I think that's that's a little bit, I mean, like, I have this frustration with kind of critical studies with games a lot of the time, which is that people will, like, use the games to make commentaries on what creators were doing or say, like, this is what games are. And, like, well, but those people are often not themselves creators, yeah. which is not a problem. Critical studies are important. Yeah. But it's, like, in this instance, it's, like, there, there is this two-sided thing, right, where, like, it can absolutely be narrative yeah. to you when you interpret it, but it has to be recognized that that's your interpretation, not the thing. Maybe, True. No. from let, my let's, perspective. Let, let, let's step away from, from narrative um, for a second. And, and you know, as a, as a, a person who writes code, um, have you ever experienced something where you've written a procedural algorithm and you've, and you've run it and it did something that you didn't expect? Yeah, a lot of the time. But, uh, and I mean, like, I say this quite guardedly because I know this is going to go into the, like, whoa, procedural code doing really, like, wow, insane <laughs> stuff. But every, every single time it, it is because, like, either procedural generation is really good at doing complex mathematics, which a lot of humans who are, you know, like myself, cannot comprehend. Like, I cannot physically think these things through their whole way to their full extent. So a lot of the time when I run, like, if I make something with procedural generation and it executes and it does something that I didn't expect, it's because I was like, wow, huh, that's interesting that it, it did that, like, that far. It's not because it did something the code didn't tell it to do. Right. And this is the same thing as well with, like, it's a bit like simulation modeling, right? Where it's like, you, you can't predict everything because you can't mathematically hold that knowledge in your head and calculate it spatially. So you can be surprised by what it spits out. Yeah. Or if you make an error, like you leave a couple of semicolons off in some places, some things interact a bit weirdly, you end up with your houses in the sky, like, you know, that yeah. also happens, but that's human error, not yeah. code creating random shit. No. So, stuff, sorry. <laughs> oh my god. 
<laughs> that's the New Zealander coming out. No, no, that's. <laughs> It's fine. We've restrained our Americanness to a great degree and not uh, randomly swore or shot anything during the podcast. So. <laughs> just firing it's fine. Yeah. No, that's um, wow. Um, yeah. But it, it, this is this is what you've described is no different than nature. Yeah. In that nature has mutations that do surprising things because of some kind of you know strange mistake. Yeah. Uh, which is which has crept into a system. Yes. Exactly. Yes. Don't think of it as a mistake. It's not a mistake. It's, it's a feature, not a bug. It's a feature, not a bug. <laughs> yeah, it's a, there. There is a point that you can trace it all back to and figure out why something did what it did. But in procedurally generated code, the math you may be so intense that it you may can't be go backwards. Difficult well, for us. You can go, but this is the thing that you can go backwards. But it requires you to have not only. I mean, like, and this is when we say, speak archaeologically, where it's like we we also can't go yeah. backwards like I, right we, we can make interpretations and same with with procedural mm. generation you can make interpretations yes but getting to the actual thing i mean like you would have to be a really good right. programmer you, with really good maths you, you can't unbake a cake yeah but you can like scientifically analyze its components and the mm. way that it turns out to make a fairly good assessment of it and this is the yes. same with with procedural yes. generation and this you is the same with with what we do with archaeology and that's a, yeah. this is a really good thing, which is I find fascinating about your research into um, procedural generation, which is, I mean, like, on the one hand, I'm kind of like, well, why don't you just ask the creator or why don't you just write the code yourself? <laughs> but it's like, like, I really do get, I mean, like, it's the same thing with archaeology. We, we can't do that. Like, we can't go back and ask our creators of these objects. No, and we our can't archaeology inherently it. takes place in the present. And so it's yeah. kind of like, if we can understand this in a controlled environment, so like, if you can start to understand how we can make assessments of procedural generation going back in time to a creator... There are some really interesting implications for how we can start to apply that to archaeology now. And this is back on track, so this Andrew, awesome. go ahead. <laughs> uh, no, I, I, I need a cigarette. No! <laughs> no. no, you don't. This, has been, this is awesome. This is exactly what I've been waiting for. Well, I think we're going to end the deep dive at this point where we are swearing and uh, so sorry. using mild narcotics. Um, <laughs> Thanks so much for the discussion today, guys. We hit a lot of different notes. We went a lot of different places. Um, it was interesting. Um, and I think that we came out of this conversation today with more things to talk about, which is always the way that you want big conversations like this to happen. Um, so uh, until next time, I am Megan Dennis. I am Tara. And I am Andrew. And we'll see you next time. Bye. like what you've heard, subscribe and share us with your social network. 8-Bit Test Pit is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, or online at the Archaeology Podcast Network site. Be sure to comment and give us a like wherever you listen. And consider donating to the show and the network on our website, archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. This show is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle, and edited by Chris Sims. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.